My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Have you ever wondered if you're bothering God by praying to him? Some people have thought that God has bigger things to do than worry about their small needs, and thus have thought it noble not to pray too much to the Lord. Is God too busy to care about you personally? The answer to that question is found in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark in verses 21 through 43. Let's join Pastor Jones as he's reading this important passage. Mark chapter 5, I'm starting at verse 41 to 40, 21, down to verse 43, and then we'll talk. It says, When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead, why trouble thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John as the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is, being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them, saying that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This great account, these two stories that are always woven together, and so we feel we should treat them together. We ask that you'll guide us, Lord, as we look into your word, give us understanding of what it means and how it applies to each of our lives, we pray. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's say that you have a child or a grandchild. Do you want um, that, that little one when they're sad or hurting, even if it's a trivial matter, do you want them to come to you? Let's say that um, 
let's say that uh, it's Mark and he's a grandpa and, and uh, little um, Emma has broken the arm off her doll. And so she comes to Mark and she says, you know, can you paste it back on? Can you fix it? Now, um, what might be a reason why Mark would not want his grandchild coming to him in a moment like that? What would be a reason that he wouldn't want his grandchild to come? Okay, maybe he was too busy with other important matters. And that's the issue at the heart of this story, by the way. Is God ever too busy? All right, what's another reason why Mark might say, eh, I really would rather not that Emma come to me at this point? What do you think, Judy? He works on vets, not dolls. Okay, I think you're hitting on a second thing that I thought about, and that is maybe he can't solve the issue. Okay, if he doesn't know how to solve it, that's kind of frustrating. You know what I mean? He doesn't know how to put the arm back on. That's why I mentioned the arm, because that's an easy fix for me. I think I can screw that, get that thing back on. Um, there may be one other reason, Tony. Maybe it's the 10th time he's done it. <laughs> Doesn't want to have to do it again. Okay. Maybe the arm can't, maybe he can't do anything about it. Right. I've got one more listed. Yeah, what do you think, Hunter? Maybe he's too tired. Didn't think of that one. Okay. Maybe he doesn't like the doll. What do you think, Don? I'm sorry? Too small of a matter? Okay. Some people may think it's too small of a matter. Good. Ah, pick this, take this kid down to the store and pick out a new one. Again, he's solving the issue. I got one more thing I thought about. Maybe he wants her to be independent. Learn to fix it herself. For those three reasons, I could see... And, um, uh, the idea of being too, uh, cannot solve the issue, um, I, I don't think I'd want my, like for instance, when I was a kid, we had a cat that got hit, hit in the road, and my mom didn't want me to see it, and I wanted to see it, and so when I got there, my thought was, why can't you fix its head? I kept saying that, fix its head, but uh, that wasn't fixable. Um, but you know when you think about the idea too about a child you want the child to learn to be independent that's the opposite of Christian maturity Christian maturity is learning to depend on the Lord for everything doesn't mean you don't work and it doesn't mean you don't have a role but you learn to rely on God and to walk with God in everything so if you think about it none of those reasons would apply to God God is never too busy God is not dealing with situations he can't solve. And God is, is not someone who wants me to learn to be independent of him. He wants me to learn to walk with him. Um, and, and you know what I'm talking about, those of you that have been married a long time, how you learn over time to rely on each other, and that's maturing love. You learn to grow together. Now, let's talk about the context of this account because it's, it's fairly significant. Um, and, and give you a couple thoughts. First of all, 
is Jesus is back. Where had he just been? If you look back, in, right before this, this is exactly the way it happened. It's the next step in, in, in the ministry of Christ. Where had he just been? You can, che- you can cheat back in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. He'd been to the Gadarenes. He'd been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They went, remember they got into a storm, and then they got over there, and they, there, were, there were two guys that Jesus de- delivered from demonic uh, possession. Then they asked him to leave. And so now he's coming back. Now there's a detail that Mark doesn't include, but Luke does, and that is the multitude was waiting for him. When he gets back, um, and I don't know if someone, if the disciples had, had, had said anything that they thought maybe Christ was coming back, um, possibly. But um, he didn't stay in the country of the gatherings long. He was only over there. He healed those guys, and the people asked him to leave. And so he's coming back across the, the sea. And if, if you can place yourself now, um, uh, what's going on? Uh, Christ is coming across with the boat, and people probably begin to spot that. Maybe some were even looking for that. And by the time he gets to the shore, as Luke describes it, there's a whole group welcoming him. And that's a good thing. So, but it, it, uh, for, the, for the guy we're about to talk about, wasn't necessarily good for him. Uh, we're talking about a desperate father now. So you have this context, but notice the desperate father. It's verse 22 down to verse 24. Behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, that's the first thing we want to talk about, the fact that he is an important man. Ruler of a synagogue, he has some influence in the community. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean he's the rabbi, but he is, he's important. He, he's going to dictate a lot of things that go on in the synagogue. Okay? So, let's keep reading. His name is Jairus by name. When he saw him, that's when he, Jairus, saw Jesus, he fell down at his feet. And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Now, there's a lot there. He is an important man, but I say he's also a hurried man. Now, why do I think that he is hurrying? I'm sorry? His daughter's near death. And it's to the point where every moment counts. Now, I will tell you this. If you look at the story, and I've, I've tried to put all three Gospels together, and I've, I've, I've basically tried to put all the details in, in, in like one block. Okay? And when you put all the Gospel accounts together, what you realize is that as, as Jairus is going, he's not in the front of the crowd. And I'll tell you why I know that in a few moments. But the point is, is that when he comes and he sees this big multitude, he hears that Jesus is coming, and he sees this big multitude, that's not good news for him. He needs to talk to Jesus, and he needs to talk to him right away. Now, um, my question is this too. Why didn't he come to him earlier? Why is the little girl at the point of death before he comes? And I don't have an answer. I'll give you a couple thoughts on this. She could have had a very serious illness that just hit her just really, really quick. Sometimes that can happen. Maybe she had some kind of a major injury. We're not told why she's at the point of death. So maybe she fell. Maybe something like that. And she's at the point of death. It also could be that she was sick. 
that they thought she was going to do better. And all of a sudden she took a turn for the worse. It could also be that he did not really like Jesus of Nazareth up until this point. Thought maybe he was a hoax. And so maybe he didn't want to go until things got so desperate. But if you can imagine him being at the side of his little girl, his wife also, you can find, she's in the story too, so, so there, she's also involved. And a discussion begins to go back and forth between them. We need help. She's going to die. And they've heard that the rabbi Jesus was doing miracles across the area. And so we've got to get to him as quickly as possible. And so Jairus rushes out to go and try to find Christ before it's too late. Now at this point, I would also notice that, that I would call him a believing man, at least by now. Because again, look at verse 23. He says, he besought him greatly. Jairus is beseeching Jesus greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. He had confidence that if he could just get Jesus to his daughter, that Jesus could heal her. But I would also submit to you, he's a frustrated man. Why would he be frustrated? Well, first of all, was the crowd. The crowd of well-wishers that were on the shore that were meeting Jesus and greeting Jesus, and maybe that's, maybe that's how he heard. Maybe someone began to spread through the city that Jesus was back. You know, who knows? Maybe he had had an opportunity the day before and ran out of time, or, or maybe he didn't, um, uh, didn't think it was that critical the day before when Jesus was there. But now he's got word that Jesus has come back, and so he begins to rush down toward the shore, and you see a bunch of people in the way. Have you ever been in that situation where you wanted to talk to somebody and there was a crowd of people in front of you? We have a men's retreat every year that uh, I like to go to and several of our guys like to go to. I'd say what, there's maybe 80 to 100 guys, Mark, something like that, typically that go. Often at the end of the, of the time, um, I'd like to, sometimes I know the speaker, sometimes I don't, but often I'd like to thank them for their ministry and say goodbye, and um, if I knew them. And so you, everything's done, and sometimes you can just walk up to the guy, but often there's somebody else, maybe two or three guys in front of you. And so naturally you form a line. You just do. You do it like you, know, you would at the grocery store. You know what I'm saying? Okay, who was there first? And so you get back there and say, I'm two guys back. And then, of course, it seems like the guy in front of you wants to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and he doesn't really want to stop. And you're standing there, and you're trying not to be nosy at the same time. You'd like to... And you don't want to be rude. You don't want to rush up and say, excuse me, but... So you can imagine... Um, times, times I've just walked away because I felt like, okay, well, you know, so-and-so, maybe it was a more important thing or whatever. I don't have the time or... Or it's, it's going to be okay. I, I literally have. I've walked away at times. But you can imagine Jairus, if you, if you were in Jairus' sandals, wouldn't you? You've been taught to be, to be respectful of other people. You haven't been taught to elbow your way to the front. But your daughter is dying. And you've got to get to him. 
And we know not only that, uh, that, that, that he's not in the front of the crowd because, because Matthew records a question. If, if you wanted to flip back to Matthew, you can see it. It's chapter 8, verse 14. It's the same story. This, I, I want you to notice Matthew 8, verse 14. If you, if you want to flip there, it's right in front of Mark. There's a little detail here that I think helps us to get a little more insight on what's going on. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 14. Look at, it says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the disciples uh, uh, and, the Pharisees, uh, and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Okay? Now skip down if you would. Jesus answers him in verses 15 to 17. Now look at verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. Do you see that? Which means this, he wasn't in the front of the line. And the guy in front of him, the guys in front of him, were asking a question that meant something to them. And that is, hey, why are you you're, you're not fasting and your disciples aren't fasting? But let me tell you something, if your daughter's dying, does that mean anything to you? You know what I'm saying? And he's thinking to himself, what am I waiting for? These guys are asking a question that means really basically nothing. Jesus is talking to them. And by the time that he can get in front of Jesus, you'll notice in Matthew's account, he says, my daughter is even now dead. Now, the other gospel accounts record that he said she's at the point of death. So what's the, what's the difference? I think this. I think that's what he blurts out when he, when he first sees Jesus. It's like, I've been waiting by now, she's probably dead. Don't you have time for me? God, are you so busy handling the trivial things of other people that you can't get to me in time to save my daughter? Talk about a frustration, huh? Can you imagine that? All he wants to do is to get his daughter to Jesus. Now back in our account with Mark, I want you to notice now we have the, the scene switches to a different character. And we have this desperate woman. So we had verse, uh, you notice in verse 24, I didn't read verse 24, so let me back up. Mark 5, 24 says, And Jesus went with him. And much people followed him and thronged him. So now the crowd's in the way again. Now I think, personally, I, I think Jairus does not stand and wait patiently at the back of the line. I think Jairus had to say my, to people in front of him, my daughter's dying, my daughter's dying. And being well known enough, he probably got people to help him get to the front. But he still had to wait for that question with, the fair, with John's disciples. And by then he falls down at Jesus' feet. And he says, Lord, she's, she's, about, she's dead probably by now. But, and she's at the point of death. Would you come? And now verse 24, Jesus went with him. And much people followed him and thronged him. So he's now they're trying, they're trying to work their way through this crowd. Verse 25, and a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, 
had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Let's stop there for just a second. Let's talk about this woman. She too has a major problem. Pretty significant problem. Um, what's going on with her? Well, it's a long-term problem, is it not? How long has it been going on? Twelve years. By the way, the same amount of time that that little girl's been alive. Isn't that interesting? Okay, she's got a major problem. She's got an agonizing problem. This problem is really bothering her. This is not an easy issue. Do you know what the, what the Old Testament law was? If you had a flow of blood, you know, we're talking, it's probably, uh, just, just being clear, it's probably her menstrual cycle has never stopped. Okay, in 12 years. Now, here was the regulation on this. It's Leviticus 15 and verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Now, what does it mean in Jewish society if you're considered unclean? Okay, there's major ramifications. Think of the quarantine that we were in, okay, all that kind of stuff. All right, first of all, she cannot marry. You can't marry, you're unclean. Can't have a wedding. If she is married, she can have no sexual relations with her husband. She can't touch anything without defiling it. Now think of that. She touches that chair. You can't use that chair without washing it, going through special reg regulations. Remember how we used to have to sanitize everything in here? Okay, that chair is unclean. You know, we could wait three days. That chair is considered unclean until you deal with it. If, you, if she's touching a pot, a clay pot, you'd have to break it. So what she would do is use that pot the entire time of her uncleanness, but as soon as she's done with it, she's going to break that pot. If it's, a, if it's a metal pot, you'd have to scour it. She can't touch any person. She can't hug a child, even if it's her own child. She can't hug her husband. Her parents can't hug her without becoming defiled. She is living like an outcast, and it's been going on for 12 years. We have to say, yes, she's a desperate woman. But compared to the girl that's dying... Is it not a lesser problem? If you came to this woman and you knew about the girl, the 12-year-old girl, and she says, oh, what, you say, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to go up and touch the Lord, and I'm going to be... By the way, her touch will defile Jesus, by the way, without his miraculous power. She's actually going against the law to do this. You said to this woman, look, you can't, you can't distract the rabbi right now. He's got to get to a 12-year-old girl. She's about to die. If someone came to you and told you that, now you've been waiting 12 years, but someone came to you and said, listen, if you distract the rabbi right now, he, he might not get to that girl in time. What would you probably say? 
I think the majority of you would say, okay, that's fine, we'll wait. I'll find Jesus a different day. Let him get to the 12-year-old girl. Jesus needs to get to her immediately. And if you secure his help right now, you might distract him. Permit me to stop off for just one second and ask you this question. When is it a good time to sacrifice a human being? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, somebody. a ministry of Calkins the Baptist Church. The Bible tells Church. us that the now, back to the message. God is so serious to commit murder that you forfeit your life at that point. But I'm talking about someone that has not done anything wrong. When is it a good th- time to kill a baby in the womb? Is it okay to kill a baby so you can finish college or high school? Is it okay to kill a child because you say you can't afford the child? Do you not know about other people that could take care of that child? Is it okay to kill a child because that child would would harm your career? Or because your boyfriend would get angry if you keep the child? Or maybe your parents will get angry with you if they find out? Abortion is not merely the destruction of a human being, but it is the deadly wound to a woman's soul. Because eventually, she's going to have to ask herself this question, why did I do it? What was the priority that was greater than the life of an unborn child? Because eventually, if she does not answer that question, and if she does answer that question honestly, she's either going to be racked with guilt or she's going to have to find forgiveness in Christ. There's just no way around it. Her problem is great, but it is lesser in importance to the 12-year-old girl. Her problem is great, but it is of lesser urgency. She can wait. The girl cannot. I think we can agree on that, can we not? This is where some of you, I don't get, get, uh, you can't even imagine asking God for a parking place at Walmart because you think, God, you've got so many other things to do. Can I take you to Psalm 139 for a moment? Keep your finger in Mark. i got a marker there. Well, go with me to Psalm 139. And can I just say that if we're going to really understand the issue of why we can pray about everything to God, we've got to get a better understanding of who God is. And so let's take a moment to go to Psalm 139 and look at who God is. O Lord, I'm in verse 1, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. You see, some people view God like this picture here. It's a, it's a mockery, actually, of the Supreme Court back in the 1800s. And the idea was that they were overwhelmed by so many cases. God is not like that. You know, oh, I'm getting so many cases from North America today. I don't have a chance. God is not overwhelmed by our prayer requests. How great is our God? 
First of all, we see in verses 1 to 3, let me give also verse 4, that he's all-knowing. He says, you know my path, you compass it around. My lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. You know everything I'm going to say, ever. Your knowledge is complete of me, all-knowing. Not only is he all-knowing, let's keep reading verse 5. Thou hast beset me behind and before. Laid thine hand upon me. Now think about that statement. You know exactly where I'm going. You've got your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? What's the answer there? Nowhere. If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even in the night, the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, the, light, the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. What's he saying? He's saying, God, you're all-knowing. He's saying you are everywhere at all times because if David can say, God, you're with me, he's saying that, God, you're with every person. That's an omnipresent God, present everywhere at all times. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus actually, in that passage, appeared to Abraham, and he says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? We read some verses in Sunday school this morning talking about how God is all-powerful. Let me give you a little idea of how powerful God is. I'm going to ask you a scientific question. I don't see Amy here this morning. Too bad. I'd like to see if she knows this one. How many cells are created in your body, an average human, every day? In one 24-hour day? Anybody want to take a shot in the dark at this? What do you think, Hunter? Give a guess. How much? Don't give me percentages, Hunter. Give me a number. <laughs> a third. A trillion. Keith says a trillion. Anybody else with a guess? One million. According to two Israeli biologists, Sender and Milo, your body produces 330 billion cells a day. 330 billion cells a day. That's 333 with 10 zeros after it. I'll give you another question. How many cells are in your body? I'll come back to 100 a little bit. How many cells are in the body of the average adult? They're estimating, folks, okay? I think. We're not counting these one by one. By the way, that's a, that's a graph of an average human cell. The complexity is incredible. We're talking about 330 billion of these things being made every single day in your body. Times that by 7 billion people. Average adult has 37 trillion cells in his or her body. Now, I want you to think about this. The God that is handling all of that is not taxed by your request as to where you're going to park at Walmart. We don't know who we're dealing with. We don't. 
I'll just tell you, our God is great. And this woman, she's a desperate woman. She's got a major problem, but it is a far lesser problem than the girl who's about to die. We understand that. But we know we have a God that cares about both situations at the same time, and it doesn't bother him a lick. Now, she didn't want to hinder the situation here. Verse 27, let's go back to Mark 5, if you would, please. How do you know that she does not want to be discovered? She didn't even want Jesus to know she's there. And it's in every single gospel account. This detail in verse 27. I'll read it. When she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Why do we know that she does not want to be discovered? What do you think, Hunter? She's hiding in a crowd of people. Good, keep going, Josh. At, yeah, you're getting to the why. You're exactly right. It's a very embarrassing situation. But how do we know, Lori? That's a problem. She's in a crowd with unclean. She didn't want to be known for that. She's actually doing something that's technically illegal. Eric? She's only touching his garment. You're exactly right. Keep going. She comes from behind him. She doesn't walk up, touch him, like a bunch of other people are doing. They're thronging him. She comes behind him on purpose. She does not want to be discovered. She does not want anybody to really understand what she's doing here. She wants to remain hidden. And again, why would she want to remain hidden? Josh was already hitting on one of them. This is a pretty embarrassing problem. She is an outcast. She's actually doing something she's not supposed to do legally. And she doesn't want to place herself on the, uh, you know, in front of everybody. She's just trying to get relief. That's all she's trying to do. Her problem is embarrassing. She doesn't, she's not trying to delay Christ, I, although I personally don't even think she knows where Christ is going. Think about it. She's coming from behind. I have a hard time hearing over this. She's in a crowd of people. She probably didn't understand what was going on with Jairus. She's just trying to get to Jesus. She's just trying to touch his garment and get out of there. So there she is. But you'll notice she acted in faith. Look at verse 28. For she said, If I may touch but the, his clothes, I shall be whole. Where'd she get that from? You know what? To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know that there's a single scripture. I do know this, that there were some... Ideas in that day that if you could touch even the clothes of a great man, that, that, that miracles could happen. And I just feel like this. I feel like she, in her mind, said, if that is true of some prophet, there is no one greater than Jesus. And it'll happen if I can get to him. Verse 29 tells us that she received her miracle Straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And boy, you can see the excitement rush through her mind and heart now as she is preparing to walk away and get out of there and go back and become clean again, get on to a normal life, what we call a normal life. But she was almost immediately terrified. Verse 30. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, that word virtue means strength, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, 
who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. Luke, I think it's Luke's account, tells us when she saw that she could not be hid. That's how he puts it. Now she's terrified. Verse 33, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her came, and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Now she wanted to remain hidden. The Lord didn't allow her to remain hidden. Um, now, why is she so scared? Why would you be scared? Ladies, why would you be scared at a moment like that? What are you thinking, Blair? She, she actually did something that was against the law. So she could, would Jesus be angry with her for touching as an unclean person his garment? Why else? Going back to Josh's thing, do you want to tell in front of everybody what's been going on? Who wants, who wants to give that information out? And who knows if Jesus will be so angry with her that he might even take away the blessing. She's afraid. She does not want to be put on display. But because Jesus looks around, she falls at his feet, and notice it, tell how he says it, she told him all the truth. Tells him exactly what went on. And how does Jesus react to her? He blessed her. Verse 34. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. So what about breaking the law? Let me ask you a question. If there's a person dying of a heart attack, let's say they're um, in Damascus somewhere, and the ambulance call comes in, and we know that it's not a matter of someone with a bruised toe. This guy, seconds are going to count. Are any of us going to be upset with Charlie for breaking the law when he drives to the ambulance building? No. You know why? Because there's a higher law. And this woman, yeah, she's breaking a, a, a ceremonial law, but the reality is there, there, there seems to be a higher law that's upon her, and that is she is desiring for Jesus to touch her and to heal her. And she's blessed by Christ through this. He had already healed her, by the way, by her, by her simple touch of faith. But he now accepted her. What did he call her? What was his term for her? Daughter. You're one of mine. One of my children. He further commended her. He said, your faith has made you well. He also encouraged her. He said, go in peace. And then he ensured her and be healed of your affliction. Be whole of your plague. When God waits to answer, and think about this, the Lord could have answered this 12 years earlier or any time in between. But when God waits to answer a prayer, he has a good reason. Sometimes he's saying no. Other times he's saying not yet. And is this not a beautiful picture of what God did in this woman's life, because he didn't merely heal of her plague, but he got, gave her a personal encounter with his own son. Well, what about Jairus? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now put yourself back in his spot. 
Okay, you've been frustrated by the crowd. You got up to the front. You got these guys asking that ridiculous question in your mind about whether or not Jesus, a disciple, Jesus and his disciples should fast. Then you're going out, and, and, and here you are finally getting Jesus to go to your house where he's going to hopefully save your daughter's life before it's too late. And then you got the crowd in the way. And then not only is the crowd in the way, but all of a sudden Jesus stops and goes, hold on, hold on, somebody touched me. And if I'm Jairus, I'm thinking, what are we doing here? You're worried about, and a matter of fact, the disciples are expressing, are they not Jairus' thoughts? They're saying, Lord, I think they're concerned about the guy, his daughter. Lord, there's a whole group of people touching you. What are you saying this for? Why are we taking this delay? Why now? I think they were frustrated with Christ too. And, and it's funny because nobody other than Jesus cared a lick about who just touched him. The woman doesn't want anybody to know. Jairus doesn't, want, doesn't care. And the disciples don't care. And I don't think anybody else in the crowd cares. But Jesus cared. Wouldn't you be asking yourself if you're Jairus, where is Jesus' sense of hurry? I'll tell you this, our Lord is zealous, and he is serious, and he is urgent, but he is never desperate, ever. Hard to imagine, is it not? But worse yet, this guy is about to become a disheartened man. So there's all the frustrations. And let's notice verse 35 and 36. While he yet spake, there came a, from the ruler of the synagogue's house a certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Boy, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Not? So you have the dreaded news. Your daughter's dead. And then the, the, the uh, logical question why, why worry about it any, why, why bother Jesus anymore? The situation's hopeless. Satan says that a lot. That's logical without God in the picture. You know, the logic of faith is far different and far superior than mere natural human logic. Let me give you some examples of this. When the 12 spies go into the land of Canaan, 10 of them come back with normal human logic, and that is it can't be done. Too many of them, too few of us. They're too big, we're too small. They've got the cities. They've got these walled cities. They're too powerful. We can't do it. Only two of them came back with the logic of faith and said, hold on, hold on. But God told us to go in. And God's the one that brought the ten plagues. And God's the one that's been feeding us with manna every day. And God's the one that's telling us that's our land. So therefore, the God that could get deliver us from Egypt and could bring us across the, the whole desert here and give us water from a rock, that God can conquer those Canaanites. That was only two of them. But they were right. Naaman's servant girl had the logic of faith. She heard about her master's leprosy and she said, there's a prophet back in Israel and if he could only get to that prophet, he'd be healed. The king of Israel himself didn't believe that. 
Every other widow, it's not widow, every other leper in Israel didn't believe that. Nobody came to Elijah for healing. Jesus would, 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 would talk about that in one of his early sermons in Luke chapter 4. But a Gentile Naaman believed it. The simple logic of faith that the God of Israel can heal me went and found it so. Logic of faith also applied to David, didn't it, when he went and fought Goliath? Everybody else was saying, too big, too strong. No way. David said, he's defied the armies of the living God. God will bring him down. And I'm willing to do it. And it applied to this woman. I can be healed just by touching Jesus' garment. The problem is, now... The man's been told his daughter was dead and you can see where this logic comes from. Then why bother Jesus any further? Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. You're going to have to trust them. Verse 36. We see the gracious Savior. Jesus was gracious, first of all, to Jairus' wife. This is my favorite picture of this story, favorite illustration. I love that illustration. There's mom holding her dead child. There's Jairus coming back trying to, hey, say it's not hopeless, it's not hopeless. Jesus has just come. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, I'm sorry, I'm verse 37. He suffered no man to follow them, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So only the three closest disciples to him were able to come. It seems that the other nine are used to keep the crowd back. Jesus does not want this to be um, blasted all around what he's about to do. Verse 38. Cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this, this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Why, they knew she was dead. And Jesus is there, and he's going to be gracious to Jairus and his wife. He comes to their house, as he had said he would. Keep it, we're in verse 40 still, but when he put them all out, who did he put out? He put out all those that, that were not believing. He brings in, notice who he brings in. He taketh the father and the mother, there she is, of the damsel, and them that were with him, that's Peter, James, and John, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And there Jesus is, with Jairus and his wife and his three disciples, You'll notice he was gracious to, Jer to the damsel, the girl herself, the little girl. Took the damsel by the hand. By the way, that was an unclean act too. Not supposed to touch a dead person. Second time he's been defiled today. It's interesting. He became sin for us, the Bible says, who knew no sin. When he died on the cross for our sins. Took the damsel by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway, or immediately, the damsel rose and walked. So it's not like she kind of stumbles around. She got up and she walks. 
She's alive and fully alive. For she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly, very seriously, that no man should know it. Why? Jesus is, would not, can you imagine how many people would be trying to bring their dead loved ones to Christ if he'd have let this be pushed around? Charged them that no man should know it. Commanded that something should be given to her to eat. Isn't that interesting? Hey, she probably hadn't had an appetite for a while. She does now. Give her something to eat. What do we conclude from all this? Whew, quite the stories, aren't they? Let me give you some conclusions. Number one, God never gets desperate. Number two, you cannot weary God. Both those situations on top of each other. And by the way, he still had time to answer the, the, that question about the fasting. Though it may seem trivial, he had time. And he did answer it. He answered it before he helped Jairus. God is never late. Didn't it seem like he was? If you're that guy, are you not about jumping out of your skin? To try to get Jesus to your dying daughter's bedside? But he wasn't late. What is impossible to man is possible with God. Do you believe that? Jesus cares about larger and smaller needs. So he cares and he, about the fact of you're thanking him for your, for your lunch. Or you're asking him for wisdom on what to wear to this job interview. Or you're asking him for the parking place at Walmart. God cares about the larger and he cares about the smaller needs. He cares about walking with you. That's the ultimate thing is he does not merely care about your need. He cares about you. And so he doesn't let the woman walk away. He wants to talk to her. He wants to bless her. He wants to welcome her as his child. Daughter. I say to you, calls her his daughter. I have two applications that maybe, and I, I, I've, I listened to a couple different messages on this. It was helpful. Let me ask you, first of all, do you have a long-term problem? Maybe it's a sin that you haven't conquered. Maybe it's a physical issue. And it's gone on. Do you think that woman who had that affliction for 12 years, do you think she never prayed about that in those 12 years? I don't. I think she prayed about that and prayed about that and prayed about that. But, but let me ask you this question. If the result of suffering for those 12 years meant that you would encounter Jesus Christ personally, be welcomed as one of his daughters, have that experience... You think God didn't have a reason why he waited? If you have a long-term problem, keep coming to God for it. And I would say this, don't just come to God, but ask God to come to you. Are you welcoming him in your home? Are you spending time with them? Are you making your home and your heart, your life, a place where God is not just able to help when you need Him, but where He's welcome? Spending time with Him. Inviting Him into your core of your life. 
Let me ask you a second question. Do you have a dead child? I'm not talking about physically dead. Maybe you have a child that's estranged to you right now. Maybe you have a child that's spiritually dead. Are you like Jairus? Are you begging God to come into your home? Because if Jesus touches that dead child, that child will live. I think one of the tragedies is many times we have dead children and we're not all that concerned. Think of this frustration this man went through. Think of the, of the zeal that, that came upon him as he sought life for his daughter that was dying. Folks, if we have children that do not know the Lord or may not know the Lord, they're not walking with God, how much does that concern us? And I'll tell you this, on Wednesday nights we've been meeting and gathering. And one of the things that we're doing is at the end we're asking people when they get into their small groups to pray for each other's families. And I'll tell you this, I'd be concerned enough that I'd go out of my way to get there. I would. Because it is not good enough. To let a child die without having Christ there. We want him in our homes. Main thought I think that we see from both of these cases is this. Jesus doesn't merely want to help in your desperate situation. But he wants to change you too. And sometimes really the desperate situation is the only thing that works. Is God too busy for us? No way. No way. Are you too busy for God? If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he free.